7. D. Very peculiar, his command in Spain, and the powerful army there, which was entirely at his own disposal, rendered him in great measure independent of the government at Carthage, and the latter seemed disposed to devolve all responsibility upon him. Even now they did little themselves to prepare for the impending contest. All was left to Hannibal, who, after the conquest of Saguntum, had returned once more to New Carthage for the winter, and was there actively engaged in preparations for transporting the scene of war in the ensuing campaign from Spain into Italy. At the same time he did not neglect to provide for the defense of Spain and Africa during his absence. In the former country he placed his brother Hasdrubal, with a considerable army, great part of which was composed of Africans, while he sent over a large body of Spanish troops to contribute to the defense of Africa, and even of Carthage itself. All his preparations being now completed, Hannibal quitted his winter quarters at New Carthage in the spring of B.C. 218, and crossed the Ibris with an army of 90.000 foot and 12.000 horse. The tribes between that river and the Pyrenees offered at first a vigorous resistance, and, though they were quickly subdued, Hannibal thought it necessary to leave behind him a force of 11.000 men under Hanno to maintain this newly acquired province. His forces were farther thinned by desertion during the passage of the Pyrenees, which obliged him to send home a large body of his Spanish troops, with a greatly diminished army, but one on which he could securely rely. He now continued his march from the foot of the Pyrenees to the Rhone without meeting with any opposition, for the Gaulish tribes through which he passed were favorably disposed to him, or had been previously gained over by his enemies. The consul P. Cornelius Scipio had been ordered to proceed to Spain but various causes had detained him in Italy, and upon landing at Massilia Marseille he found that Hannibal was already advancing toward the Rhone. Meantime the Carthaginian general effected his passage across the river, notwithstanding the opposition of the Gauls, and when Scipio marched up the left bank of the river he found that Hannibal had advanced into the interior of Gaul, and was already three days in advance of him, despairing, therefore, of overtaking Hannibal. He determined to sail back to Italy and await him in Cisalpine Gaul, but as the Republic had already an army in that province, he sent the greater part of his own forces into Spain under the command of his brother Sin, Scipio. This prudent step probably saved Rome, for if the Carthaginians had maintained the undisputed mastery of Spain, they might have concentrated all their efforts to support Hannibal in Italy and have sent him such strong reinforcements after the Battle of Cannae as would have compelled Rome to submit. Hannibal, after crossing the Rhone, continued his march up the left bank of the river as far as its confluence with the Isere. Here he interposed in a dispute between two rival chiefs of the Allobroges, and, by lending his aid to establish one of them firmly on the throne, secured the company operation of an efficient ally, who greatly facilitated his farther progress. But in his passage across the Alps he was attacked by the barbarians and as he struggled through the narrow and dangerous defiles the enemy destroyed numbers of his men. It was some days before he reached the summit of the pass. Thenceforth he suffered but little from hostile attacks, but the descent was difficult and dangerous. The natural difficulties of the road, enhanced by the lateness of the season the beginning of October, at which time the snows had already commenced in the high Alps, caused him almost as much loss as the opposition of the barbarians on the other side of the mountains. So heavy were his losses from these combined causes, that, when he at length emerged from the valley of Aosta into the plains of the Po and encamped in the friendly country of the Insubres, he had with him no more than 20.000 foot and 6,000 horse. 
such were the forces with which he descended into Italy to attempt the overthrow of a power that a few years before was able to muster a disposable force of above 700.000 fighting men. Five months had been employed in the march from New Carthage to the plains of Italy, of which the actual passage of the Alps had occupied 15 days. Hannibal's first care was now to recruit the strength of his troops, exhausted by the hardships and fatigues they had undergone. After a short interval of repose, he turned his arms against the Torinians a tribe bordering on, and hostile to, the Insubrians, whom he quickly reduced, and took their principal city Turin. The news of the approach of Piscipio next obliged him to turn his attention toward a more formidable enemy. In the first action, which took place in the plains westward of the Ticinus, the cavalry and light-armed troops of the two armies were alone engaged, and the superiority of Hannibal's Numidian horse at once decided the combat in his favor. The Romans were completely rooted, and Scipio himself severely wounded, in consequence of which he hastened to a retreat beyond the Ticinus and the Po. Under the walls of Placentia, Hannibal crossed the Po higher up, and, advancing to Placentia, offered battle to Scipio, but the latter declined the combat, and withdrew to the hills on the left bank of the Trebia. Here he was soon after joined by the other consul, T. Sempronius Longus, who had hastened from Ariminum to his support. Their combined armies were greatly superior to that of the Carthaginians, and Sempronius was eager to bring on a general battle, of which Hannibal, on his side, was not less desirous. Notwithstanding the great inferiority of his force, the result was decisive, the Romans were completely defeated, with heavy loss, and the remains of their shattered army, together with the two consuls, took refuge within the walls of Placentia. The battles of the Ticinus and Trebia had been fought in December and the winter had already begun with unusual severity, so that Hannibal's troops suffered severely from cold, and all his elephants perished except one, but his victory had caused all the wavering tribes of the Gauls to declare in his favor, and he was now able to take up his winter quarters in security, and to levy fresh troops among the Gauls while he awaited the approach of spring. As soon as the season permitted the renewal of military operations BC 217, Hannibal entered the country of the Ligurian tribes, who had lately declared in his favor, and descended by the valley of the Macro into the marshes on the banks of the Arno. He had apparently chosen this route in order to avoid the Roman armies, which guarded the more obvious passes of the Apennines, but the hardships and difficulties which he encountered in struggling through the marshes were immense, great numbers of his horses and beasts of burden perished, and he himself lost the sight of one eye by a violent attack of ophthalmia. At length, However, he reached Fazuli in safety, and was able to allow his troops a short interval of repose. The consuls for this year were Sien, Servilis and C. Flaminis. The latter was the author of the celebrated agrarian law which occasioned the Gallic War, and in his first consulship he had gained a great victory over the Insubrian Gaul. See page 79 sixth paragraph of chapters I. Transcriber. He had been raised to his second consulship by popular favor in spite of the opposition of the Senate, and he hurried from Rome before the Ides of March, lest the Senate might throw any obstacle in the way of his entering upon his consulship. He was a man of great energy, but headstrong and reckless. When Hannibal arrived at Fazuli, Flamenis was with his army at Aradium. It was always the object of Hannibal to bring the Roman commanders to a battle, and therefore, in moving from Fazuli, he passed by the Roman general, and advanced toward Perugia laying waste the fertile country on his line of march. Flamenis immediately broke up his camp, and, following the traces of Hannibal, 
fell into the snare which was prepared for him. His army was attacked under the most disadvantageous circumstances, where it was hemmed in between rocky heights, previously occupied by the enemy, and the lake of Trasimenus. Its destruction was almost complete. Thousands fell by the sword, among whom was the consul himself, thousands more perished in the lake, and no less than 15.000 prisoners fell into the hands of Hannibal, who on his side is said to have lost only 1,500 men. Hannibal's treatment of the captives on this occasion, as well as after the Battle of the Trebia, was marked by the same policy on which he afterward uniformly acted, the Roman citizens alone were retained as prisoners, while their Italian allies were dismissed without ransom to their respective homes. By this means he hoped to excite the nations of Italy against their Roman masters, and to place himself in the position of the leader of a national movement rather than that of a foreign invader. It was probably in order to give time for this feeling to display itself that he did not, after so decisive a victory, push on toward Rome itself, but, after an unsuccessful attempt upon the Roman colony of Spoladium, he turned aside through the Apennines into Pisanum, and thence into the northern part of Apulia. Here he spent a great part of the summer, and was able effectually to refresh his troops, who had suffered much from the hardships of their previous marches, but no symptoms appeared of the insurrections he had looked for among the Italians. Meantime the Romans had collected a fresh army, which they placed under the command of Q. Fabius Maximus, who had been elected dictator by the commission of the centuries. Fabius formed a different plan for the campaign. He determined to keep the heights, and not to risk a battle but at the same time to watch the Carthaginian army, cut off its supplies, and harass and annoy it in every possible way. From pursuing this policy he received the surname of Cunctator, or the Lingerer. Hannibal now recrossed the Apennines, descended into the rich plains of Campania, and laid waste, without opposition, that fertile territory, but he was unable either to make himself master of any of the towns, or to draw the wary Fabius to a battle. The Roman general contented himself with occupying the mountain passes leading from Samnium into Campania, by which Hannibal must of necessity retreat, and believed that he had caught him, as it were, in a trap, but Hannibal eluded his vigilance by an ingenious stratagem, passed the defiles of the Apennines without loss, and established himself in the plains of Apulia, where he collected supplies from all sides, in order to prepare for the winter. Meantime the Romans, having become impatient at the inactivity of Fabius, raised Menaces, the master of the horse, to an equality in command with Fabius, his rashness very nearly gave Hannibal the opportunity, for which he was ever on the watch, to crush the Roman army by a decisive blow, but Fabius was able to save his colleague from destruction, and Hannibal, after obtaining only a partial advantage, took up his winter quarters at the small town of Geronium, Menaces acknowledged his error, and resumed his post of master of the horse. During the winter the Romans made preparations for bringing an unusually large force into the field. The people thought that it needed only a man of energy and decision at the head of an overwhelming force to bring the war to a close. They therefore raised to the consulship C. Tarantes Barrow, said to have been the son of a butcher, who had been for some time regarded as the champion of the popular party. The Senate regarded this election with dismay as Varro possessed no military experience, and they therefore persuaded the people to appoint as his colleague Alanilis Paus, who had distinguished himself by the way in which he had conducted the Illyrian war during his consulship. Hannibal remained at Geronium until late in the spring B.C. 216, when, compelled to move by the want of provisions, 
he surprised the Roman magazines at Cannae, a small town of Apulia, and established his headquarters there until the harvest could be gotten. Meanwhile the two Roman consuls arrived at the head of an army of little less than 90.000 men. To this mighty host Hannibal gave battle in the plains on the right bank of the Althidus, just below the town of Cannae. We had no statement of the numbers of his army, but it is certain that it must have been greatly inferior to that of the enemy, notwithstanding which, the excellence of his cavalry, and the disciplined valor of his African and Spanish infantry, gave him the most decisive victory. The immense army of the Romans was not only defeated, but annihilated, and between 40 and 50,000 men are said to have fallen in the field, among whom was the consul Emilius Paus, both the consuls of the preceding year, the late master of the horse, Menaces, above 80 senators, and a multitude of the wealthy knights who composed the Roman cavalry. The other consul, Varro, escaped with a few horsemen to Venusia, and a small band of resolute men forced their way from the Roman camp to Canusium. All the rest were killed, dispersed, or taken prisoners. Hannibal has been generally blamed for not following up his advantage at once, after so decisive a victory, by an immediate advance upon Rome itself a measure which was strongly urged upon him by Maharbal. Only send me on with the cavalry, said this officer, and within five days thou shalt sup in the capital. Whatever may be the motives that deterred Hannibal from marching upon Rome. We cannot but be surprised at his apparent inactivity after the battle. He probably expected that so brilliant a success would immediately produce a general rising among the nations of Italy, and remain for a time quietly in Apulia, until they should have had time to declare themselves. Nor were his hopes disappointed, the Herpenians, all the Samnites except the Pantrian tribe, and almost all the Apulians, Lucanians, and Brudians, declared in favor of Carthage. Though the whole of the south of Italy was thus apparently lost to the Romans, yet the effect of this insurrection was not so decisive as it would at first appear, for the Latin colonies, which still, without exception, remained faithful, gave the Romans a powerful hold upon the revolted provinces, and the Greek cities on the coast, though mostly disposed to join the Carthaginians, were restrained by the presence of Roman garrisons. Hence it became necessary to support the insurrection in the different parts of Italy with a Carthaginian force. Hannibal marched first into Samnium, and from thence into Campania, where he obtained possession of the important city of Capua, the gates of which were opened to him by the popular party. Here he established his army in winter quarters. Thus ends the first period of the war, in which Hannibal had met with an interrupted success. Three great victories in three years followed by the revolt of a city scarcely inferior to Rome itself in importance, seemed to promise a speedy termination of the war. Footnote 31, the pass of the Alps which Hannibal crossed was probably the Grian Alps, or Little Street Bernard. See note, on the passage of Hannibal across the Alps, at the end of this chapter. Footnote 32, at this time the consuls entered upon their office on the Ides of March. It was not till B.C. 153 that the consulship commenced on the Kellens of January. Note on Hannibal's passage across the Alps. See page 84, fourth paragraph of chapter XII. Transcriber the narrative in the text is taken from that of the Greek historian Polybius, which is certainly by far the most trustworthy that has descended to us, but that author has nowhere clearly stated by which of the passes across the Alps Hannibal effected his march and this question has given rise to much controversy both in ancient and modern times. Into this discussion our limits will not allow us to enter, but the following may be briefly stated as the general results. 1. 
that after a careful examination of the text of Polybius, and comparison of the different localities, his narrative will be found, on the whole, to agree best with the supposition that Hannibal crossed the Grian Alps, or Little Street Bernard, though it cannot be denied that there are some difficulties attending this line, especially in regard to the descent into Italy, too. That Seely's Antipater certainly represented him as taking this route live. Xxi. 38, and as he is known to have followed the Greek history of Silenus, who is said to have accompanied Hannibal in many of his campaigns, his authority is of the greatest weight. 3. That Lardy and Strabo, on the contrary, both suppose him to have crossed the Coppian Alps, or Mont Genevra, but the main argument that appears to have weighed with Lardy, as it has done with several modern writers on the subject, is the assumption that Hannibal descended in the first instance into the country of the Torinians, which is opposed to the direct testimony of Polybius, who says expressly that he descended among the Insubrians, and subsequently mentions his attack on the Torinians. For, that, as according to Alardi himself, see, 29, the Gaulish emissaries who acted as Hannibal's guides were Boyans, it was natural that these should conduct him by the passage that led directly into the territory of their allies and brothers in arms, the Insubrians, rather than into that of the Torinians, a Ligurian tribe, who were at this very time in a state of hostility with the Insubrians, and this remark will serve to explain why Hannibal chose apparently a longer route, instead of the more direct one of Mont Genevra. Lastly, it is remarkable that Polybius, though he censures the exaggerations and absurdities with which earlier writers had encumbered their narrative, does not intimate that any doubt was entertained as to the line of March, and Pompey, in a letter to the Senate, written in 73 BC alludes to the route of Hannibal across the Alps as something well known, hence it appears clear that the passage by which he crossed them must have been one of those frequented in subsequent times by the Romans. This argument seems decisive against the claims of Monsignas which have been advocated by some modern writers, that pass having apparently never been used till the Middle Ages edict of Greek and Roman biography, volume I, page 334, 335, chapter XII, Second Punic War, Second Period, from the revolt of CAPUA to the Battle of the Enigiaurus, B.C. 215-207, Capua was celebrated for its wealth and luxury, and the enervating effect which these produced upon the army of Hannibal became a favorite theme of rhetorical exaggeration in later ages. The futility of such declamations is sufficiently shown by the simple fact that the superiority of that army in the field remained as decided as ever. Still it may be truly said that the winter spent at Capua B.C. 216-215 was in great measure the turning point of Hannibal's fortune, and from this time the war assumed an altered character. The experiment of what he could effect with his single army had now been fully tried, and, notwithstanding all his victories, it had decidedly failed, for Rome was still unsubdued, and still provided with the means of maintaining a protracted contest, but Hannibal had not relied on his own forces alone, and he now found himself, apparently at least, in a condition to commence the execution of his long-cherished plan that of arming Italy itself against the Romans and crushing the ruling power by means of her own subjects. It was to this object that his attention was henceforth mainly directed. From this time, also, the Romans changed their plan of operations, and, instead of opposing to Hannibal one great army in the field, they hemmed in his movements on all sides, guarded all the most important towns with strong garrisons, and kept up an army in every province of Italy to thwart the operations of his lieutenants and check the rising disposition to a revolt. 
it is impossible here to follow in detail the complicated operations of the subsequent campaigns, during which Hannibal himself frequently traversed Italy in all directions, appearing suddenly wherever his presence was called for, and astonishing and often baffling the enemy by the rapidity of his marches. All that we can do is to notice very briefly the leading events which distinguished each successive campaign. The campaign of BC 215 was not marked by any decisive events. The consuls were Q. Fabius Maximus whose plan of conducting the war had been fully vindicated by the terrible defeat of Cani and Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus. With the advance of spring Hannibal took up his camp on Mount Typhata, where, while awaiting the arrival of reinforcements from Carthage, he was at hand to support his partisans in Campania and oppose the Roman generals in that province, but his attempts on Cumi and Nepalis were foiled, and even after he had been joined by a force from Carthage very inferior, however, to what he had expected, he sustained a repulse before Nola, which was magnified by the Romans into a defeat. As the winter approached he withdrew into Apulia, and took up his quarters in the plains around Arpi, but other prospects were already opening before him. In his camp on Typhoda he had received embassies from Philip, king of Macedon, and Hieronymus of Syracuse, both of which he had eagerly welcomed, and thus sowed the seeds of two fresh wars, and raised up two formidable enemies against the Roman power. These two collateral wars in some degree drew off the attention of both parties from that in Italy itself, yet the Romans still opposed to the Carthaginian general a chain of armies which fettered all his operations and though Hannibal was ever on the watch for the opportunity of striking a blow, the campaign of B.C. 214 was still less decisive than that of the preceding year. Fabius was again elected consul, and Marcellus was appointed his colleague. Early in the summer Hannibal advanced from Apulia to his former station on Mount Typhoda to watch over the safety of Capua, from thence he had descended to the Lake of Vernus, in hopes of making himself master of Puteoli when a prospect was held out to him of surprising the important city of Tarentum. Thither he hastened by forced marshes, but arrived too late, Tarentum had been secured by a Roman force. After this his operations were of little importance, until he again took up his winter quarters in Apulia, during the following summer B.C. 213, while all eyes were turned toward the war in Sicily. Hannibal remained almost wholly inactive in the neighborhood of Tarentum. The hopes he still entertained of making himself master of that important city rendering him unwilling to quit that quarter of Italy. Before the close of the ensuing winter he was rewarded with the long-looked-for prize, and Tarantum was betrayed into his hands by two of its citizens. The advantage, however, was incomplete, for a Roman garrison still held possession of the citadel, from which he was unable to dislodge them. The next year B.C. 212 was marked by important events in Sicily and Spain to which we must now direct our attention. Hiero, so long the faithful ally of Rome, died shortly after the Battle of Cannae B.C. 216, and was succeeded by his grandson Hieronymus, a vain youth, who abandoned the alliance of Rome for that of Carthage, but he was assassinated after a reign of fifteen months, and a republican form of government was established in Syracuse. A contest ensued between the Roman and Carthaginian parties in Syracuse but the former ultimately prevailed, and Episides and Hippocrates, two brothers whom Hannibal had sent to Syracuse to espouse his interests, had to quit the city, and took refuge at Leontini. Such was the state of affairs when the consul Marcellus arrived in Sicily B.C. 214. He forthwith marched against Leontini, which Episides and Hippocrates defended with a considerable force. He took the city by storm, and, 
though he spared the inhabitants, executed in cold blood two thousand Roman deserters whom he found among the troops that had formed the garrison. This sanguinary act at once alienated the minds of the Sicilians, and alarmed the mercenary troops in the service of Syracuse. The latter immediately joined Hippocrates and Epicides, who had made their escape to Urbeshus. The gates of Syracuse were opened to them by their partisans within the walls, and the party hostile to Rome was thus established in the undisputed command of that city. Marcellus now appeared before Syracuse at the head of his army, and, after a fruitless summons to the inhabitants, proceeded to lay siege to the city both by sea and land. His attacks were vigorous and unremitting, and were directed especially against the quarter of Acradna from the side of the sea, but, though he brought many powerful military engines against the walls, these were rendered wholly unavailing by the superior skill and science of Archimedes, which were employed on the side of the besieged. All the efforts of the assailants were baffled, and the Roman soldiers were inspired with so great a dread of Archimedes and his engines, that Marcellus was compelled to give up all hopes of carrying the city by open force, and to turn the siege into a blockade. The siege was prolonged far on into the summer of B.C. 212, nor did there appear any prospect of its termination, as the communications of the besieged by sea were almost entirely open. In the state of things Marcellus fortunately discovered a part of the walls more accessible than the rest, and, having prepared scaling ladders, effected an entrance at this point during the night which followed a great festival, and thus made himself master of Epipoli. The two quarters called Tiki and Nepalis were now at his mercy, and were given up to plunder, but Epicides still held the island citadel and the important quarter of Acradna, which formed two separate and strong fortresses. Marcellus, however, made himself master of the fort of Euryalus, and had closely invested Acradna, when the Carthaginian army under Himilco and Hippocrates advanced to the relief of the city. Their efforts were, however, in vain, all their attacks on the camp of Marcellus were repulsed, and they were enabled to effect a junction with Epicides and the Syracusan garrison. The unhealthiness of the country soon gave rise to a pestilence which carried off both the Carthaginian generals and led to the entire breakup of the army. Shortly afterward the treachery of a leader of Spanish mercenaries in the Syracusan service opened to Marcellus the gates of Acradna, and in the general attack that ensued he made himself master of the island of Ortigia also. The city was given up to plunder, and Archimedes was slain by a Roman soldier, being so intent upon a mathematical problem at the time that he did not answer a question that was asked him. He was deeply regretted by Marcellus, who gave orders for his burial, and befriended his surviving relatives. The booty found in the captured city was immense, besides the money in the royal treasury, which was set apart for the coffers of the state. Marcellus carried off many of the works of art with which the city had been adorned, to grace his own triumph and the temples at Rome. This was the first instance of a practice which afterward became so general, and it gave great offense not only to the Greeks of Sicily, but to a large party at Rome itself. The fall of Syracuse was followed, though not immediately by the subjugation of the whole island by the Romans, but these successes were counterbalanced by the defeat and death of the two Scipios in Spain. We have already seen that P. Scipio, when he landed at Massilia and found himself unable to overtake Hannibal in Gaul, sent his brother Cnaeus with the army into Spain, while he himself returned to Italy. In the following year B.C. 217 Publius himself crossed over into Spain, where he found that his brother had already obtained a firm footing. They continued in Spain for several years, during which they gained many victories, and prevented Hezdrubal from marching into Italy to support his victorious brother. 
when Hezdrubal was recalled to Africa to oppose Syphax, one of the Numidian kings, who was carrying on war against Carthage. The Scipios availed themselves of his absence to strengthen their power still farther. They gained over new tribes to the Roman cause, took 20.000 Celtiberians into their pay, and felt themselves so strong in B.C. 212 that they resolved to cross the Idris and to make a vigorous effort to drive the Carthaginians out of Spain. They accordingly divided their forces, but the result was fatal. Publius was destroyed, with the greater part of his troops, and Pnaeus was also defeated, and fell in battle, 29 days after the death of his brother. These victories seemed to establish the superiority of Carthage in Spain, and open the way for Hezdrubal to join his brother in Italy. In Italy B.C. 212 the two consuls Apius Claudius and Q. Fulvius began to draw together their forces for the purpose of besieging Capua. Hannibal advanced to relieve it, and compelled the consuls to withdraw, but he was unable to force either of them to fight. Shortly afterward he returned again to the south to urge on the siege of the citadel of Tarentum, which still held out, and he spent the winter and the whole of the ensuing spring B.C. 211 in its immediate neighborhood. But during his absence the consuls had renewed the siege of Capua, and prosecuted it with such activity, that they had succeeded in surrounding the city with a double line of entrenchments. The pressing danger once more summoned Hannibal to its relief. He accordingly presented himself before the Roman camp, and attacked their lines from without, while the garrison company operated with him by a vigorous sully from the walls. Both attacks were however repulsed, and Hannibal, foiled in his attempt to raise the siege by direct means, determined on the bold maneuver of marching directly upon Rome itself, in hopes of thus compelling the consuls to abandon their designs upon Capua in order to provide for the defense of the city, but the staring scheme was again frustrated, the appearance of Hannibal before the gates of Rome for a moment struck terror through the city, but a considerable body of troops was at the time within the walls, and the consul Fulvius, as soon as he heard of Hannibal's march, hastened, with a portion of the besieging army, from Capua, while he still left with the other consul a force amply sufficient to carry on the siege, Hannibal was thus disappointed in the main object of his advance, and he had no means of effecting anything against Rome itself, where Fulvius and Fabius confined themselves strictly to the defensive, allowing him to ravage the whole country without opposition, up to the very walls of Rome, nothing therefore remained for him but to err, 